1: In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Log Talk
1: Radio. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and this afternoon, our guest will be Dr. Alexandra Stein, who is an expert on... uh, Cults. She's done a lot of research on cults. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little, re- a little uh, blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether, and our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol, it's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest is Dr. Alexandra Stein. Uh, she's written a book. It's called Inside Out. Uh, it's a memoir of her experiences in a Minneapolis political cult. Uh, she's also uh, written a doctor's dissertation, of course, being a doctor. Um, the, the dissertation is quite interesting. It's about um, attachment. Uh, let me get the title here. Um, Attachment, Networks, and Discourse in Extremist Political Organizations. And we're going to uh, talk quite a bit about the dissertation because it's very interesting. Uh, Dr. Stein is right with us. Alexandra, how are you doing this afternoon or this evening in London?
0: Yes, it's evening. Very well, thanks, Ken. Thanks for having me on.
1: Well, it's uh, great to have you here. Tell us a little bit about uh, what is your background that made you want to do research on cults?
0: Okay, well, I um, got, had an experience back in the 80s um, as a kind of young political activist. I got involved in very much by mistake and accident in a what I kind of now talk about as a sort of toxic political group of a quote-unquote leftist variety. They weren't really leftist because they were just into oppressing everyone in the group. So... Um, anyway, and I, that's the subject of my first book, um, because when I got out of that after 10 long and dreary and unhappy years, being a person of an analytical turn of mind, I really scratched my head and had to stop and think, how did this happen to me? How did I get into this really horrible group that really constrained my life and pretty much had total control over what I did during those years? And I started studying about cults and about what I call totalism and eventually that led to me going back to, going to university and um, I've been studying this basically for 20 years um, and really with an eye to explaining the mechanisms because it's, people get so confused about it and tend to take a kind of blame the victim stance, you know, what was wrong with that person that they did that. And I really didn't feel that was a useful analysis. Um, So I've been studying that and also very much wanting to help prevent people get caught up in such things, which I think if they understand how they work, it gives them a lot of uh, ability to, to be more resilient to approaches by cultic groups.
1: Well, we've talked about this before. A couple of weeks ago, we had uh, Yanya Lalich on, and it seems like a lot of people get involved. I mean, they're just average people, but they're having an emotional low time. Did you find this to be true?
0: Um, yes, I mean, I think it's what. Um, and I don't know if Yanya, who's a colleague of mine, I know her work; she does wonderful work. Um, what uh, uh, one of the leading experts in this field, the late Margaret Singer referred to as a a normal blip that, you know, when you go off to university, you leave home, that's a normal life change. If you um, lose your job or if you move to take a job in a new place, if a relationship breaks up. So in other words, yes, I think cults do take advantage of these normal transitions in life when we're kind of open to new things. But I think the kind of stereotype, again, is that, you know, this is someone who's in utter crisis and they're needy and they're really looking for a cult. And, you know, the evidence doesn't support that view, if, that, if that's a clear distinction. It's a kind of normal life transitions is when one is more vulnerable. But they also get people at other times, even when they're not in transition, frankly. <laughs> But I I was, um, having said that, um, and that's kind of a complicated story to do with San Francisco where I was living at the time, and the left and what was happening in the 80s, just things were really changing, and Reagan came in, and there was um, some, things were getting more conservative in a way in the country as a whole, and so I think the left was a little bit unclear where it was going.
1: Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, but that's a long story. There's, <laughs> people have written in interesting ways about that. But,
1: well, what is totalism and what is totalitarianism? Is there a difference between the two? Tell me about those two.
0: Yes, I use the word totalism, which um, Robert J. Lifton, who was an early researcher in this field, used. But I think it's very useful because there's, on the one hand, there are cults and people have a kind of general understanding of a cult, you know, a a group that, you know, a charismatic leader controls. And then there's totalitarianism, which is a state. So, for instance, you know, Hitler's Germany was a totalitarian state, or Stalin's Soviet Union was totalitarian. North Korea, I would call a totalitarian state. So totalitarianism is really when it's the government is using these same kind of processes that cults use. And I like to talk about them together because... The only difference, in my view, is that one is in government and the other is a small group, but they very much look the same when you look at the social psychological dynamics within them. So I talk about totalism, and I have a sort of five-point characterization of what a totalist system is. So that could be a group or a state. So number one, and kind of key, is the leader, because these things... Um, are defined entirely by the leader, and the leader must be charismatic and authoritarian. So they have to have charisma in order to be able to, so to speak, seduce people into doing what they want. And they also are authoritarian, in other words, they're bullies. So you might have someone like Nelson Mandela is charismatic, but he's not a bully. So he doesn't fit, he doesn't, he didn't run a totalist system. He ran something trying to be a democratic system. So the leader is charismatic and authoritarian. The structure is very closed and very steeply hierarchical. So the leader is really sitting on top of this whole organization with total control. So you have to look at, you know, is the structure open or closed? Is it totally controlled or is it democratic control? The third point is the um, ideology, and it, these groups have what we call absolute or total ideology. In other words, it's my way or the highway, and that way is the leader's way. Right?
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: there's no arguing, there's no discussion. Is this r- a right way of thinking or a wrong way of thinking? It's this is the way of thinking, and you can think of fundamentalist, any kind of fundamentalist group whether religious or political, you know, this is the word and we're not going to quibble. So that's an absolute ideology. Um, The fourth point is the process that's used, and that process is brainwashing. So we'll talk about that a bit later. That's where the attachment analysis is useful as to how that control of people's minds takes place. And finally, what I call the results or the outcome is followers who are exploited, controlled, at the service of the leader. So uh, that's quite a long (laughs) description of those five points, but basically you want to look at the leader, the structure, the ideology, the process, and the results. So that's my definition of what a totalist system is.
1: Okay, I'd like to go back to the first point. Are there groups uh, that... uh totalist groups that survive uh, after the death of the leader?
0: Well, my feeling is that there's three possible routes that a group can go down after the death of a leader. One is um, there can be another leader who can take the place of that leader, who has those same charismatic and authoritarian traits, and they maybe have been groomed by the leader or maybe they were just there biding their time so an example of that is Scientology when L. Ron Hubbard died David Miscavige was a young man with these same charismatic and authoritarian traits and he stepped in very comfortably to that role so if you have a useful replacement the group can carry on in its totalist way or the group can fall apart if the leader dies or, or if the leader somehow gets imprisoned or goes away in some way. And I think Dr. Lalich's group, that's what happened. So the group just can't hold itself together. And then the third thing that can happen is the group can become more like a kind of non-totalist group, what you might call a sort of bureaucratic group where Instead of having a leader, maybe now it's going to have a group of leaders, they're going to have some rules and regulations that are kind of clearer, and it'll be a bit more, not necessarily the nicest group in the world, but it's going to lose its completely closed qualities. So I think those are, in my experience, the three different ways groups can continue, if you see what I mean, or not continue, after the death of a leader
1: but often i think they fall apart. mhm mhm well i think some uh some leaders set their things up to be self-perpetuating. um i'm just speculating now on some possibilities. Uh, one would be if we look at hitler's germany, if hitler had been assassinated would it, everything have just kept going?
0: You know, I don't know. I'm always happy to say I don't know because there's lots of things I don't know, and that's an important part of being non-totalist, frankly, just to be able to say that. Um, (laughs) um, You know, we'll never know that. But did was there enough of a structure? Were there? You know, North Korea is a very interesting example that we're seeing right now.
2: Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. Um, You know, where there were successfully, you know, the There's already been two generations of these totalist leaders. Now there's a third. This young guy has just come in. I'm sorry, I don't remember his name. Um, It seems to me he's a bit more open than uh, his father and his grandfather. And I'm very curious. Is he, you know, does he want to carry on? Has he got those traits, the, the bullying, charismatic traits, where he wants to carry on having that iron grip? My, I've got a kind of instinctive feeling just from some things I'm reading in the papers that he may not. Um, there's silly things like, you know, they've had Mickey Mouse over there. I mean, I'm not a big fan of Mickey Mouse, but there's this kind of slight cultural opening that's happening. So it's dangerous to do that if you're a totalist leader. People might get ideas if you open the system up at all. So... You know, we just have to look and see about how these things
1: operate. Well, that's interesting because you mentioned Stalinist Russia, but then when we saw Khrushchev take over, there were some huge changes from the Stalinist ideals.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember Khrushchev always said, what kind of communism is it that can't give people sausage?
0: Right, and it did open up the system. I mean, I'm not an expert on that history, but it did open things up, and it opened things up you know, for instance, my parents were communists, right? Mm-hmm. And it, 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 the whole, what was it, the 1956 speech where he, I can't quite remember the details, I'm sorry, but, you know, where this whole generation of communists got to think, well, maybe we shouldn't just follow the party line. Maybe we have to think something different. And that was this kind of, again, that opening up moment where things shift and things change. So, you know, there were no longer the absolutely terrible purges and the terrible, you know, imprisonments that had gone on during Stalin's time. I'm not saying it became a perfect system, but it changed his character.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there um, were huge changes. Uh... We, we
0: wonder if, it's going, if what it is now with Putin, he certainly has that seems to have that nasty combination
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: the charisma and the authoritarianism and a and a movement of young people dangerously who are who are following him. Um, so that's also interesting to look at.
1: Well, I'm going to get off this sidetrack pretty quick, but there's one more thing okay. I'm going to mention before we do. Uh, are you familiar with a group called Synanon?
0: I am. I am. And and it's many, it's many, um, there are many others similar to it. I mean, I think there's one in England called Phoenix, I believe. I don't know if you've heard of that, where I think they did some of those same kinds of things. Um, Very high pressure, high pressure things. What were you going to?
1: That's an interesting one to me because Synanon made... I mean, there's so many spin-offs. I mean, it seems to be really self-perpetuating. Every time one gets shut down, another one Mm -hmm. pops up. So that seems to be Mm -hmm. like a system that was almost self-perpetuating.
0: Well, that's really interesting that you say that. And one of the most fascinating parts of my research, which actually I haven't written up or published, but I one day maybe will is if you take one of these totalist groups, so let's say the group I studied, the Newman Tendency, which was this leftist political group in New York. Well, it was national, but it was headquartered in New York. You can draw, you can do a kind of genealogical diagram about where did this leader come from. Let me give you another example. Are you familiar with Landmark Forum? No. It's um, Are you familiar with EST? Yes. Back in the 70s, that kind of personal development, quote-unquote, group. That was run by Werner Earhart. You can do, again, this genealogical kind of ancestral chart. He, now I'm going to have to try to remember this. He was a graduate, actually, of Scientology. And then he... And so Anyway, you can kind of work these things backwards. A lot of these leaders learned their tricks through another group, through some experience that they had with another group. And then if they have these personality traits of charisma and authoritarianism, so for instance, Werner Earhart was in Scientology, well, that wouldn't have worked well for him because he's going to come into conflict with the actual leader, who at the time was L. Ron Hubbard. So these guys sometimes women learn their tricks in a group and then they spin off their own thing and you can trace these back so he spun off est which actually used some of uses some of the same language as scientology they talk about the tech and the tools and similar kinds of things then he was done for some crime and he spun off another thing which was landmark which he i think sort of runs long distance Um, And in my group, you could see where Newman had had to do with Lyndon LaRouche and learned a lot from him, who's another crazy political cult leader. Um, And you can tie these things back and back and back in very interesting ways and see all these connections between these guys. So I think there's two ways these things, these leaders learn their tricks. One is from experiences in related groups so they then have conflict because they want to be the boss so then they spin off their own thing and i think they also learn in a more deep emotional gut level way their means of operating through their early childhoods is another completely kind of different piece which is how they become charismatic and authoritarian is from their own difficult backgrounds so i and, and also so i think there's a lot of this kind of copying that goes on so if you look in the 70s and 80s, all these groups were like Synanon. You know, they just kind of became. You know, somebody would have either had experience with that or seen it and copied it. Mm-hmm. So I think there is, but they still have to have. You know, not anyone is going to go copy that model. Someone who mm-hmm. wants to control other people is going to copy that model, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the kind of self-perpetuating piece. Is people see hey this works I can control people and that's why people like you and I have to be active in educating the public because these things are just continuing and continuing and growing and growing and they're not going to go away until the public becomes very aware of them and able you know, to protect themselves
1: yeah we see a lot of the spin offs of Synanon, Synanon itself was not really a money maker it was more about control but the spin offs like Straight Incorporated or WASP Worldwide uh, Association of Specialty Schools. They're huge money makers too.
0: Yeah, they're terrible, some of those stories. They really are, and the, the things that they're doing with kids, right?
1: Yeah, we've uh, interviewed uh, survivors of Straight on a previous show, yeah. and we have another uh, survivor that's going to be t- uh, on an upcoming show probably in October that's got a new book out yeah. about Straight.
0: That's great. That that's that's really. I'm really glad to hear that you're doing that. It's really important to get that stuff out.
1: Now let's move on to some of the things in your dissertation. Um, you talk about trauma bonding and disorganized attachment. And can you define these for us?
0: Okay. Okay, let me see if I can do this. Usually I do this with diagrams um, on a blackboard or a whiteboard. So I'll try to do that with, with this without... So the way I'm, so the problem I'm trying to answer is, how do these leaders get control of people? So, for instance, myself, you know, I was a very intelligent young woman. I was a highly critical thinker. I was very independent. How did I get so controlled? So, my thesis is that it's through this. Oh, let me back up. Okay, so I'm using this. John Bowlby's attachment theory To understand this So Bowlby was a child Psychologist, psychiatrist um, And he wrote These wonderful Really important books on attachment In the 70s And he talked about And this is kind of based on evolutionary Theories um, That as human beings You know we have certain Instincts, we have to eat when we're hungry We have to find ways to stay warm when it's cold. We have sex to reproduce. You know, we have these instincts that have been part of reproducing out the species. And he said, we also we have another one which is the instinct to attach to another. And we don't just, so babies with their caregivers, if they didn't have this instinct to attach and to stay close to their caregiver, the species wouldn't survive. If a baby wandered off into the savannah, you know, the lions would eat it. So it was important for the survival of the species that there was this attachment instinct that served the purpose of protection. And then he talked about there's a kind of 60% of the population is lucky enough to have what we call secure attachment. And that's when there's a flexible, open, and responsive relationship with the caregiver so if you think of a kind of happy parent and their child when the child is stressed or frightened it goes to the parent and the parent comforts it and then lets the when the child is comforted the child can go out again and explore and play and the parent neither ignores the child nor holds on to the child, but there's this kind of flexible, like a rubber band between them. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense?
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So that's what we call secure attachment. And the child, when it is being comforted, is using the parent as what Bowlby called as a safe haven. And when the child goes off to explore, they then check back to see the parents there, but they still can go off and play. And then they're using the parent as what Bowlby called a secure base. So this doesn't always work well, and we can have other forms of attachment. If the parent is rather cold or neglectful or rejecting, the child learns there's not much point seeking the parent for comfort because the parent isn't going to give it to you. So then the child kind of detaches from its need for attachment. It still has that need, but it kind of shuts it down. On the other hand, if there's a parent who's kind of very intermittently there but not reliably present to the child, the child gets very clingy, which is useful because it can, when the parent's there, it's there, ready, waiting for that attachment. So those are two other forms. One's co- the first one's called avoidant attachment and the second one's called preoccupied attachment. Actually, I'm going to give you different names. The first one's called dismissing attachment and the second one's called preoccupied attachment. And we can kind of think of, and this carries on in adulthood and we can maybe think of people we know who are clingy or who are a bit distant or who are just secure. So that's all well and good and those, they're not all as you know secure as best, but the other ones are pretty adaptive. The real problem is when you have what we call disorganized attachment. And that's when the parent or the caregiver is frightening. So you have a child whose instinct when it's under stress or frightened is to go to get comfort from the parent. But if the parent is the source of the fear, that's a kind of crazy-making situation,
2: mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm.
0: Because you're, the child is going towards the fear where... Really, to survive, we have to go away from sources of fear. You know, that's what's adaptive. Mm -hmm. And there's very interesting research about what's happening in the brain at that moment of going towards the source of fear. Um, Just to back up, if you think of a situation of domestic violence, you know, people say, why didn't she leave or why
2: didn't, Mm -hmm. you know,
0: That's the same thing that's going on. There's a kind of bond to the partner. And importantly, the partner's isolated the person so they have nowhere else to turn when they don't have any other attachment figures. Then they're frightened by being beaten up or threatened or whatever. And they go towards the partner for comfort. So it's a similar thing. And what's happening in the brain is that it's basically... It results in dissociation and there's good studies now actually being able to look you know with this wonderful new neuroscience research Mm -hmm. these Mm -hmm. pet scans and all this wonderful stuff they're doing where they can see what is called the thinking part of the emotional brain the part that kind of takes all your feelings and evaluates them for survival and then thinks then kind of sends over to the cognitive part of the brain which says, oh, I better get out of here, that part actually kind of turns off in that in that fear, heading towards the source of fear moment. So you're literally sort of disabling the brain and that's really what dissociation is, is your left cognitive, verbal, logical word using part of your brain is no longer talking to your emotional sensory I'm frightened or I feel good or, you know, evaluating feelings, part of your brain. And, but importantly, it's just disabling that connection in terms of that frightening relationship. So, for instance, when I was in my cult, I couldn't think about my group, which was frightening. And yet I had nowhere else to go when I felt that way because they'd successfully isolated me Mm -hmm. from other attachments. But I could go to my job as a computer programmer, which I was then, and I could think perfectly well and logically. It wasn't like my whole self had become stupid. It was in relation to that relationship I had dissociation. Mm -hmm. I think this is what's hard for the public to understand. Because it's quite a specific and subtle piece that's being disabled. Um, I haven't mentioned really what's key in all of this, and this is sort of the major thing that I would want people to know as the warning, the key warning sign of what I call a dangerous relationship, whether it's a cult, an individual, a state, whatever. Is that relationship trying to, is that person trying to isolate you? Because if you're isolated, that's when you get into this dynamic where you have no one else to turn to, so you have to turn to that person or group as the safe haven. Mm -hmm. if If you're involved in a group, but you still have your old friends, you're still connected to your family and you're involved in this group, and maybe you like or you don't like the group, maybe you stay in it or you leave, all that's okay. You have a place to go to say, to talk about the relationship with the group, right? Mm -hmm. Or if you're in a personal relationship, you know, I've got this new boyfriend, he's really annoying me, I can go and, (laughs) you know, talk to my friends and my family about it, and I can have a whole process of thinking and evaluating, is this a useful relationship for me? But if I'm isolated, which is what these dangerous relationships do, it's the key, absolute number one key thing they do, then I have nowhere to turn. And then I have to move towards the source of fear when that person frightens me, and then I'm dissociated, and then they can tell me what to do. So I think it's a terribly important piece. And you'll see in these groups, they all are isolating. So, for instance, in my group, you know, I mean, I remember writing a letter. Early on, I remember I was writing a letter to an old friend, and I was told, why are you writing? Who are you writing to? Well, I'm writing to my friend, old friend in San Francisco. Well, what purpose does that serve? How is that helping? And so, you know, just that's a little tiny example, but they'll put down any previous relationships, and there's a variety of ways in which they isolate people—a great variety of ways. Some places more or less imprison you, like some of these kids, like straight and so forth. Some some places it's more subtle. You know that person's holding back your development, and you'll see the isolation in the structure and in the ideology. So, for instance, in Scientology and many groups, most or all, all of these groups. If somebody's in the group and then they leave, the people in the group have to shun that person, right? Because it's too mm-hmm, dangerous mm-hmm. to let people still have contact with this person, because they become a what I call a kind of um, escape hatch relationship outside of the system, which can break the dissociation. So it's a little bit complicated, but it's it's also not that complicated. <laughs> <laughs> So, isolation is the real danger here. Um, if you're not isolated, you can continue to think through and evaluate an involvement. But once you're isolated, you're extremely vulnerable.
1: Now, uh, yeah. yes. <clears throat> A lot of people that have uh, that think that uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is cultish have uh, really commented on this isolating aspect. Uh, first, uh, AA tells you drop all your using friends, and then next you hear, "Well, only alcoholics can understand other alcoholics. No normies can understand us." Uh, some people get told, "You know, you need to divorce your wife if she's not in the program, or your husband if he's not in the program, or if they're not in Al-Anon or some twelve-step program." Uh, and, of course, if anybody ever leaves AA, the first thing, oh, they're out there drinking again.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that is, uh, to me, that would that is problematic. Um, You know, I would, in my evaluation, if I was, you know, people often ask me, you know, is such and such a group, totalist or cultic, and I try to go back to my five-point definition because you may have one of the points but not another. Mm-hmm. And I would leave it to your listeners um, to engage in that exercise. I'm trying to think what an example would be. Um, you know, people will say things like the the marines, or maybe even in a convent, or some, yeah, some mm-hmm. closed structure. Well, is that a cult? And it may have some of those qualities, but... <laughs> You know, say if you sign up for the Marines, you kind of know what you're getting into. You sort of know, you know, you're on a two-year thing. It's not kind of a forever thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And you do get to go back. I mean, there are. it's a complicated thing because there are bits of it that are similar.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But I, it's not, it doesn't really, you know, in the Marines, is there really a kind of charismatic authoritarian leader that's running the whole show? No, there's these drill sergeants that
1: bully you. <laughs> there's something
0: different about it um yes. well
1: in you know in the modern day system um with convents that you mentioned well it takes yeah. many it takes many many years to become a nun and uh, you know while you're going through that process you can leave at any time
0: right you have a, a right you have a period of I think it's called discernment or something isn't it mm-hmm. um and right And, you know, yeah, when you leave, you've left, Um, and, you know, people can choose to make that commitment, and yes, it's a very total commitment, but, and yes, of course, there are abuses within these systems, you know, but not all of them. You know, I don't believe the entire, you know, people will say to me, well, isn't the Catholic Church a cult? Well, actually, I think bits of it are, like Opus Dei, we kind of know has all these features, but the whole thing, no. You know, like any large organization, there are problems. But is the whole system this kind of integrated thing that's performing brainwashing on everyone? I really don't think so. Um,
1: mm-hmm. Well, I, I was thinking, I've been thinking about this quite a bit, I was thinking in the Middle Ages, uh, convents and monasteries were more cultish than they are today. They were quite different.
0: In what way? Because I'm, I'm not sure. Um, with.
1: Well, the one thing I'm thinking of is people would, you know, send someone to the convent or to the monastery. The convent's the, the better-known example. They had no choice, and, you know, they mm-hmm. were not, they didn't have this. Currently, it's, you know, you several years you go through being a novice and uh, postulant, and it takes years before you're a professed nun, so you can leave at any time, and there's no punishment for leaving, you know, during those several years. But, you know, then it was, you know, you were in... Immediately, you didn't have the choice. <laughs> so there's, there seemed a lot of uh, more authoritarian aspects. And I think some of these mind control techniques, you know, they've been with us forever. They didn't just pop up. You know, they were yeah. used in earlier religions. They're used in the military. They are, because you want to train your soldiers to not <laughs> think about, you know, is it right or wrong to kill the enemy? <laughs>
0: <laughs> they're supposed
1: to go out there and shoot when they're in the middle of the battle. <laughs>
0: right and and that's true, um but you get out at a certain point, and I yes, think the, exactly you know mm-hmm. there's the, it's not your total life, you know, like the I think when I talking about the absolute ideology, that third um characteristic mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um it's really saying we've got the truth of the past, the present, and the future, we are the entire world, this is your entire life. It's not something you just pass through. I mean, you can pass through some of these things as a you're just a customer, you know. Mm-hmm. So you know, not all the pieces of a large cults operation want to pull everybody in. Some are just using people to get money. But the people really in the system, there is no expectation of getting out. You know, people have to escape. Mm-hmm. These systems
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, so it's that total that's that kind of total nature of it this is forever and ever amen and ain't no way out way out the only way out is an escape and then you're shunned and you know as one of my um, one of the people I interviewed from the Newman uh, study you know when she left the great leader said you know well Marina is you know she's in the dustbin of history now, you know, this is kind of, your own, you become a non-person, you have, you know, no right to existence anymore, mm-hmm. whereas, you know, that, again, there isn't, yes, people have to be, yeah, to be a soldier and to kill people, you have to go through some very intense psychological programming, but you don't become a non-person when you get out of the military.
2: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm
0: and so it hasn't quite got that total element.
1: Oh yeah, so, I would I would agree yeah, very much. Yeah, um yeah. but you know, it, it they use some aspects of uh, mind, of mind control thought control, but uh most of the aspects of a totalist organization aren't there in the military.
0: And and I think I mean, what's interesting too is if you look at the some history um, of social psychology, so um, so something like AA, where it's very much about the group process and group influence. And you know, I don't have experience with AA, but I have experience with some kinds of support groups. Well, for instance, when I got out of the cult, I joined a support group of people who had also gotten out of cults, and I there was, it was there was a great power in that shared experience. So on the one hand, I think these support group structures can be wonderful because you're meeting other people. So, you know, for me coming out of a left-wing political cult, I was talking with ex-Jehovah's Witness teenagers, and we had so much in common. It was remarkable. Well, people from these kind of weird Bible-based cults in the Midwest, survivalist cults, I could have conversations with them about our experience that I couldn't have with a political person who had been in a, you know, non-cultic political group. So there's a great power in the support group, but I think mm-hmm. what I'm hearing you saying, and I think is dangerous, is if when that support group closes and becomes then an isolating thing, then you maybe have some trouble when it's, everything is about the support group, which certainly the ones I was in, that wasn't the case. But, you know, they do, they can turn into that where they start turning inwards and becoming controlled and isolating you. So maybe that's what people are feeling is dangerous or unhelpful, at least.
1: Yeah, there's also the uh, fact AA says that if you ever stop going to meetings, you're going to drink and die. It's inevitable. You can never graduate. Um, it's so much like the fundamentalist uh, Christian church that I was raised in that I escaped
2: uh-huh.
1: early on. <laughs> if you ever leave the church, uh-huh. you're going to burn in hell forever. If you ever leave AA, yeah. you'll drink and die. Uh, you can't have any relationships with. Well, you can't go to. You can't uh, marry a Catholic because the Catholics are all going to hell. And you know you can't talk to uh, non-alcoholics because they don't understand you and they'll lead you down the path to drink. I saw so many similarities. That's uh yeah. Well, I had a very negative experience with AA, not, as I, I'm certain you can tell.
0: Yeah, and and it sounds, it does sound, I mean, those are problematic things. You are getting into that kind of total thing there, which is our way or the highway, right? Yes. This is the only way. And, you know, that to me is a warning sign. It's like, no, there are many ways to skin a cat. There are many roads to roam, right?
1: This is, exactly.
0: So, I mean, I, I would agree that that's a that is a bit of that's a control mechanism, right? Mm-hmm. And it's that, and it, and it uses fear to control, which is your other warning sign. <laughs> so, and you know, it may, it may well be. You know, I have this definition of a totalist system that's about a very particular thing. Undoubtedly, there are many other forms and sort of sub species of this kind of thing that may not have all of those things but some of them and that's not necessarily what i study i'm trying to focus on you know this cultic piece but i think just looking at is the system dissociating your emotional feelings your perceptions your sensory feelings about the world from your ability to think clearly and evaluate those feelings you know, that's the core of my work is the cultic system is set up to prevent you thinking. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm touching this. Well, you know, Tony Robbins, here's a great example. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to walk on these hot coals. They're not going to burn my feet. And granted, you know, some people can walk <laughs> quickly enough on the hot coals. They don't burn their feet. But, you know, <laughs> 20 people did burn their feet the other day. You know your feet you're going to go hot, ouch, I should get off of here, right That's mm-hmm. the being able to cognitively think cleverly about your feelings if you dissociate or kind of so hyper aroused or anyway that's not to get too complicated about that. you know you're not going to be able to listen to your feelings and take appropriate survival action, and mm-hmm. that's the piece I'm really interested in that happens when the group or person is both the only safe haven and the source of fear, and they've isolated you from everyone, any other escapes. And in that, you literally can't think properly for your survival. And so if we wonder why these suicide bombers do these terrible things, it's not because they're crazy people, it's because they've been made, they've had that dissociative process induced where they're not able to think about their survival. So I think it's a powerful thing to understand um, this kind of core of disorganized attachment and dissociation and what that does to people. Well, I don't be- know if I've explained it in a useful way, but I, I hope people have some, gotten some sense. And um, I have got some things written. I don't know if you can post this, but I have on my blog, which is blog.alexandrastein.com, there are some various, Articles that I've written that people can look at if they're interested and want to go a bit further to understanding some of this. And maybe if you're able to post that link, that would be helpful for people.
1: Yeah, I'm going to add that on the show description uh, after we finish the show. Um, before we leave this uh, topic entirely, um, I, I want to say, you know, I have colleagues who are members of AA, um, especially because I work in harm reduction, and some of uh, my colleagues in Needle Exchange, some of my mentors are members of Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous, and, you know, so I, there are people that manage to remain very sane and open to multiple points of view in, mm-hmm. uh, in in Alcoholics Anonymous, I mean, although they're members, uh, but, you know, other people I know really do take on this there's only one way, you can't do anything else, you're going to die and they become total zealots, so, uh, mm-hmm. in my opinion, AA has a number of aspects of a totalist group
0: Well, maybe they're not doing it well enough, <laughs> if some <laughs> people are managing to keep a balanced view, because in a In my sort of definition of a cult, you would be put under a lot of pressure if you maintained that balanced view. That's not going to go down well. So you would be maybe expelled um, or you would be criticized or punished. But that's not going to be tolerated in this extreme form that I'm talking about. It just isn't going to happen. So, you know, I was a, in my group, I was a, a bad member you know i would complain about things and you know i go into trouble um it's not just accepted you know you have to toe the line or you have to shut up which is what i ended up doing until i escaped um so i think you, you know that's again it, they're not they're not completely totalist in that case. If there are people who are able to kind of have this so maybe they're somewhere on that continuum,
1: you know. Yes, I would agree. They're not completely totalist. Um they have some aspects of totalism and you know different different AA meetings have uh different uh degrees of rigidness. So there there is quite a very I mean it's an old organization now. It's over 75 years yeah. old. So it's uh, yeah. it's moved away from the origins.
0: And does each kind of meeting have a leader, so to speak, or each, you know, I don't know really how it's structured, but because that could be an element, too, that, you know, often in, well, let's take the Catholic Church, you know, there are these subsections like Opus Dei, and there's some others, which Mm -hmm. exist under the umbrella of the Catholic Church, but really they're their own thing, with their own leadership.
2: So, So, yeah. Mm
0: You know, I don't know if that's going on where some of these meetings, you know, have got these personalities at the top, but they can exist within the overall structure. I, I don't know. I'm just Um There
1: are out. there There are a couple of those. I think they talk about the Pacific groups, but those are uncommon. What is common through all the AA groups is that you need to get a sponsor and, uh, you know, basically – Because you're powerless, you're insane, you have to ask your sponsor, you know, everything. Can I change my job? Can I get married? Can I rent a new apartment? You know, people, Mm -hmm. it's this one-on-one relationship that is very, uh, it's very totalistic in some ways. Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm.
0: And that reminds me, I don't know if um, Janja Lalic, your guest, talked about that because she's written quite a bit about these buddy systems in cults where you, many cults you get assigned a buddy Mm-hmm. who has, who kind of more or less follows you around so you're never alone. Um, and the same kind of thing, you have to clear everything
2: mm-hmm. with the body.
0: So that's part of the isolation. They're preventing you going anywhere else or having any other contact that's non, not group-related. So that would be an interesting comparison to look at. Um, yeah, how that relationship works. Yes, and okay. I think yeah, that power. Yeah, the thing with saying you're completely powerless is, it does. You know, I feel like even if people are, that is a control mechanism too, because it's saying you have nothing, you don't exist, and therefore you have to take everything from the group, and that's what cults do. You know. Mhm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I, I, I do see that's also problematic. Interesting.
1: <laughs> okay, I want to get back to your dissertation. Um so, uh you you analyzed the Green Party and the Newman tendency. So tell us what are what are both of them. Lots of people probably know the Green Party. I don't know if so many know the Newman tendency at least under that uh, name. Yeah. But what are they and what are some of the differences?
0: Okay, well what I wanted to do for my research was compare two groups. I So I picked a group that I had knowledge from former members, seemed to have a lot of totalist pieces. And that was this group called the Newman Tendency that has many other names. It's run out of New York by, well he's died I think just last year, uh, Fred Newman, who was a philosophy, uh, well he had been a professor way back, and became an unlicensed therapist and developed his own therapy called social therapy, which I would call brainwashing therapy. Um, and he ran this sort of left-wing group that did theater and politics and would run candidates for president. People may have heard of Lenore Fulani. She's still in the group, that she would mm-hmm. run for president um, several times. And they actually have quite a lot of power in New York in, in the elections there and they they, they, um, have been active in the Independence Party. Not to say all the Independence Party is Newman, but they have had power in the New York Independence Party. So they were this interesting group that there were many reports of people coming out of that group going, ah, they're a cult. And I wanted to compare that group with a... Because I believe I'm still a political person, and I don't think all politics is cultic, as I don't think all religions are cultic. I wanted to look at a group that I felt wasn't cultic, and really just highlight the differences. So the Green Party does not, and my research came up with this, as, you know, concluded this as well. You know, doesn't isn't cultic. It may have problems, but it's a pretty open, democratic form of organization so i basically looked down those five points but i you know how what was the leadership like and indeed in the newman tendency there was this charismatic authoritarian guy fred in the green party there wasn't really a single leader you could point to in fact when they wanted to run Nader for president he wasn't even a member of the green party so and they so there were differences in leadership The structures were completely different. The Newman tendency was closed. The Green Party is very open. People come and go. They commit as much or as little time as they want. In the Newmans, you commit your whole life once you're kind of in in it all the way. The ideology, Fred Newman is famous for saying things about how, you know, the, I can't remember what they called it now, but you know, social therapy and his way of thinking Is the total answer to everything that ever has been and ever will be. And the Greens, you know, have all different strands of thinking coming and going. Um, In the Newman tendency, they would have these really intense, coercive, quote, therapy sessions where they would just beat people down and, you know, until they kind of submitted and then you know, work them all hours of the day and night, exhaust them, isolate them again from all their prior connections. In the Green Party, there was none of that. People kept all their social connections, you know, while they were in the Green Party and after they left. You know, there was none of this shunning. There was none of this you can't talk to your family. They just, it didn't really affect their social lives other than maybe they picked up some friends you know, not necessarily while they were active in it. Um, and there just weren't any signs of coercion in the Green Party. And in the Newman Party, people were very exploited, and point five on my five-point definition. You know, Fred Newman slept with a bunch of the women. Um, he had what was called the harem, his kind of little coterie of women that was a leadership. People... He got tons of money, people's inheritances, people's wages. It all went up the chain, up to Fred. Um, There were stories that I heard firsthand of people being forced to have abortions because he didn't want people wasting their time with their children. Um, One woman was told to put her kid in in foster care. You know, just really exploitative, controlling kinds of behavior. In the greens, you just don't see anything like that. It just doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. people might be annoyed with each other in the greens. You know, I disagree with you on what you think about whatever, you know. There's some fights and there's, you know, so-and-so's what, you know, there's the normal kinds of human interactions, but it's very much just what you would see anywhere. Um So I kind of wanted to look at that just to highlight that there are these very particular behaviors that we see in this one organization, and you don't see them in a non-coercive organization. And so if you want to join an organization, you can look at these elements and make an evaluation. So don't just get sucked into one, but know that there are some that have more or less healthy dynamics and some that don't. And we need to have some methods by which we can evaluate those. You know, are they open? Are they secretive? You know, another thing cults do is they're very secretive and deceptive.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, I don't think the Green Party could keep a secret if it tried. (laughs) Um, So I don't know if that's kind of what you were trying to get at.
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, yes. And... um... What were some of the research tools you used? You Use the adult attachment interview, the group attachment interview. Um, what are they, and what kind of results did they give you?
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting thing. I actually, in attachment theory um, and attachment research, um, there's a very interesting research tool called the adult attachment interview, because if you go back to what I was talking about, those different styles of attachment, secure, dismissing, preoccupied, and disorganized, this instrument has been shown that by getting people to talk about their early attachment experiences, you can, so to speak, categorize them as to what their attachment status is by the way they talk. And it's not so much in a funny way what they say. It's not saying, oh, you know, my... Mother hated me or loved me or whatever it's in a way how they say it because it's how their brain has stored the memories and it's in a way to do with that dissociation that i was talking about so people who had these frightening early childhood relationships unless they've resolved that and really worked it through in later good relationships they the way they speak will reflect that dissociation so you can, if you're asking, describe a time, well, I'm not going to give an example of the interview, but you're talking about in the interview about maybe a traumatic time. That person will go right back, kind of like a post-traumatic stress flashback in a way is what it is. They'll go right back to that moment, and they won't be able to talk in a what we call a coherent narrative. They might just pause, go you up, know, oh, or look funny, or say, or start talking in the present tense about things that happened 30 years prior. So it's kind of like they're being thrown right back to that moment, or they can't think about it at all, so they just stop talking. So there's all these interesting things that show up in the way they speak about it that you go, ha, there's an unresolved trauma there. Therefore, that was disorganization and dissociation. So I took that interview that's about kind of one's relationship to one's attachment figures and I changed it and I made something new and different called the group attachment interview where I got people to talk about their relationship to their group. So I had the Newman, well former members of the Newman uh, tendency tell, you know, in the structure of this interview tell me about their relationship to the group and I did the same with former members of the Green Party. To be clear, I use former members in my research because you can't get current members of cults to talk to you. It's very difficult. I tried, but they're told not to talk to you. That's part of the isolation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But this interview, it doesn't matter if they're former or current because it's based on your memory. It's really how your memory was stored about that experience. So sure enough, with my Newman Tendency people, First of all, they had these stories of kind of trauma, you know, like I'd have people talking about being in these groups where they were being really torn torn apart in these sort of criticism sessions. Um, or, well, that, we'll just use that as an example. And they would, you could see this happening where they couldn't have a coherent narrative. They were just, talking of or or they would talk about times where they were like sleep deprived and on the road doing the selectioneering and they were hungry and tired and I had a couple people talking about those times, really traumatized and they would go back and talk in the present tense, even though they'd been doing that. So they would say, I am I am standing in the parking lot. I am I have I'm talking to people and their ice cream is melting and they don't want to talk to me this woman is talking about something that happened 25 years ago but she's back in that moment she mm-hmm. hasn't she, it, that memory hasn't traveled from her emotional part right brain and been stored in the nice sort of tidy logical left brain which is what normally is the process she's still dissociated about that experience and i saw that quite clearly that human tendency people all but one of them showed that and nobody in the greens. They had There were momentary little bits in the greens, but they didn't come to, in this interview, there's a scale of when it kind of, um, what well, you call somebody disorganized in relation to that relationship. So it's, it's very interesting. And, I mean, perhaps, you know, listeners can think of times where they talk to people about a difficult traumatic experience, and you can almost imagine how that is, where people can't really tell you the story properly because they're still troubled by it. So it's it's also kind of common sense. But in cults this is a deliberate uh the whole structure is set deliberately to prevent people having that coherent thinking about what they're experiencing. So it was really fascinating to do, um and to have these conversations and I'm very grateful to my interviewees so it's it's you know, some for some of them it's a difficult thing to talk back. But on the other hand, when they did talk about it, I think people felt relieved because they had told the story a little bit more. And in telling the story, you actually start to reassociate those bits of the brain. And, you know, mostly people don't tell these trauma stories, right? They keep them, Mm -hmm. and they feel ashamed and stigmatized. So I think there is also, if one's a sensitive interviewer, um people can feel they get some benefit from from telling the story to someone who's who's compassionate and understanding so it was a, a very rewarding and, and interesting experience to do that that piece of work
1: well that's probably uh, an important way to overcome these experiences is uh re- retelling them
0: it is the way <laughs> in fact mm. Um, because of it's but it's retelling them in a safe environment that's Mm -hmm. the key Mm -hmm. and that's where you know a good therapist or a good friend um, or a good family member you know who's not going to be judgmental or whatever and who can be empathetic I think that's what's key is to you and you're really then in a way modeling a secure attachment and you're able because part of what a secure attachment does, say with, well even with adults, is when we have a secure other person close to us, you know if you're upset you go to your good friend and they help calm you down, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Or if you're um, very low, they might say, oh come on let's go for a walk. They might perk you up. You know they help you regulate yourself.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And that's what a secure attachment does is a kind of positive way of helping one reg- self regulate with with other people so if you can tell a trauma story, so to speak, in a safe environment, that actually diffuses that flashback in right brain. I'm still there, I'm still in that experience, all I'm doing is refuelling that emotion as if i'm you know in that moment. And it actually moves it through to the left brain, where it gets stored, and takes the heat out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, similarly, I think for me, writing my book about my experience had some of that effect. With, in, I had support around me as I did that, I wasn't on my own, but I built what's called a coherent narrative. So now
2: mm-hmm.
0: I can talk about most anything to do with that experience, and I give talks, and when I teach I let people ask me all kind of questions. And with some exceptions, I can pretty much tell that whole story now without dissociating because I've done it. I've practiced it. It's in my left brain, logically ordered. I know how to tell the story, and that in itself, as you said, is healing because it, you're not—you're no longer dissociating. You have associated the two sides of the brain.
1: That's a really important point. Um, I get people come to me all the time and they say, I'm trying to deprogram from my AA experience and how do I do it. And I I think you've given us uh, an important answer of how to do it.
0: Yeah, talk about it with empathetic people. (laughs) It's a marvelous thing.
1: (laughs) Um, Yep. Well, I think uh, we've... uh, we're running out of time. I think we covered some really important points in this show, so I want to thank you very much for being our guest, Dr. Alexandra Stein. You're
0: most welcome. Thank you for having me on.
1: And everyone stay tuned next week. We'll be back at our regular time with uh, Dr. Neil Neal. Yes, he has the same first and last name, Dr. Neal Neal, uh, talking about his book, uh, Living with a Functional Alcoholic. And I will see you all then. Good night